1: You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and we are away to Greenwich this week. And I think Greenwich has kind of snuck into my affections. Perhaps I was a bit resistant to it the first few times I went there. The Cutty Sark had been set on fire. The weather was bad. But over repeated trips, I think I've come to really like the place. And as I came out of Cutty Sark DLR station, I felt right at home. Plenty of good stuff to see and do in Greenwich: markets, cafes, always something going on at the Naval College. But but we are this week the proud media partners of the National Maritime Museum, and so naturally we are making a beeline for that institution just across the road from the college. It backs onto the park, and it is there that they are just about to launch an exhibition to one of London's most famous sons. And by the way, Greenwich reminds me of one of my favourite radio outtakes. It's from the 1980s, and the newsreader is obviously new at her job as she. Introduces the bulletin. Hello, it's eight o'clock Greenwich. Meantime, here's the news.
0: Hey baby, let me take you down. So we'll play some strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just stance through.
1: dimly lit room and uh, looking at pictures scenes from the 1600s we're at the national maritime museum with me robert Blythe, senior curator of maritime history chris martin also the exhibitions curator hi guys Hello. Well, the space we're in is dedicated to someone who I wouldn't immediately associate with the sea, but of course it takes very little inspection of his famous diary to reveal that he has uh, an abundance of maritime connections. Samuel Pepys, the exhibition is Plague, Fire and Revolution, and we're in the calm just before the storm. I think we have a member's view going on this evening. Yes,
2: Yes, that's right. So it's final, last-minute, labels on walls, dusters going round that sort of thing everything's spick and span for
1: this evening it is looking good and we've turned off the sound effects so that we can have our own private view of the exhibition before the hordes come in chris do you fancy opening up we've just come in the main entrance here and we're confronted with a picture of a crowd and top right. There's a fellow with an axe in one hand and a head in the other. This seems like
3: a good place to begin. Yep. The exhibition is not just about Samuel Pepys, the witness, and the diary, but it's much, much more than that. I mean, the exhibition looks at Pepys, also the protagonist, if you like. So Pepys being at the centre of this grand narrative, this grand story of the age that we're talking about. The painting you mention is um, the execution of Charles I. It's a contemporary painting, a very potent piece of propaganda about the death of the king. We're starting the exhibition in 1649, partly because it's one of the earliest events that Pepys talks about in his diary. His diary begins in 1660, but he looks back on 1649 and mentions that, as a 15-year-old schoolboy, he decided to bunk off school, St Paul's School, and go and watch the grisly event in Whitehall. And um, so, somewhere in the crowd in this painting is Samuel Pepys standing there, approving of the execution of the king.
1: Oh, that's interesting, because one of the things I've only recently learnt is that his diary, which runs to in excess, I think, of a million words, it was only really written over nine or nine and a bit, arguably, years. So I was wondering how he managed to uh, witness all of these huge events in British society. Pepys begins his diary in
2: 1660. I think he's got a real sense that he's about to witness an age when something is going to happen. There's a real sort of sense of anticipation. Um, the republic that follows the king's execution is now beginning to fall apart, and Pepys is getting swept up in events, particularly under the influence of his cousin, Edward Montague, who's a politician and he becomes a clerk for his cousin, and through that route, Pepys then
1: emerges, as it were, onto the British stage. And Pepys really does start the diary, doesn't he? Mixing in the personal and the national, and the, the, the national political. A- absolutely. He sort of gives a summary of where Britain is at at the
2: end of um, 1659 the beginning of 1660 and then he also as it were gives a summary of where he is at. He announces of course that he is free of pain only two years earlier he'd had this horrific operation to remove a bladder stone so he's still celebrating his, his good health and um, he also thinks that his wife may be pregnant as well so there's a whole host of events personal and national going on at this point.
3: But also there's a bit of Monday in there for instance the first entry records how his wife burns herself on the oven while preparing a turkey well that might be mundane for him
1: <laughs> well <laughs> now with this mention of illness starting things off, you can promise me we're not going to see anything grisly as we go around in the exhibition right i'm afraid you will see quite a bit that's grisly. yes <laughs> <laughs> so who's in charge of all this who's put this together we've both put it together it's
2: absolutely a joint effort chris and i are the same two sides of the same coin
1: uh, where the exhibition is. Considered. I've got to say, this is an about turn from the introductions that we were making before we started recording. Oh, absolutely. The word grovelling was used at one point. Yes,
2: yes. I mean, Chris is my grovelling assistant on some days, and then I am his on others. So it, it's we, we share the
1: duties equally. And what about the genesis of the exhibition? Was that something that you've had cooking for a while, or did that suggestion come from somewhere else?
3: Or? Well, we've wanted to do a Stuart exhibition for quite some time. We had a very successful Elizabeth exhibition in 2003 and um, for various reasons we had a bit of a break after that where we had a new wing built and various other things Um, um, but we'd always wanted to go back and revisit the Stuarts look at the Stuarts do something because we're at the heart of a Stuart site here at Greenwich we've got the Queen's House we've got the Old Royal Naval College or the Old Royal Hospital as it was um, over the road so we're at the heart of this Stuart um, site and so we've always wanted to do a Stuart exhibition and about two two and a half years ago we started looking at the possibility of integrating Samuel Pepys into it, because everybody knows Samuel Peake for the diary but very few people realise that for almost 30 years he was working for the Navy Board and the Admiralty and was key to the administration of the Royal Navy.
1: Maybe this is a premature question but what did he what did he achieve? Was he just a pen who melded into the general administrative scene or were there some accomplishments to his name? I think Pepys is more than a simple
2: pen pusher. He, he's actually not a boring civil servant, as we might imagine him to be now. He's very much a man about town. He's part of London culture. He's on the theatre scene, you know. He would be in the sort of magazine pages of, of the day. He would be someone to be, to be seen. But... He's also extremely good at his day job. He becomes a very accomplished and astute administrator in the Navy. He's able to initiate some naval reforms, and you can actually see him almost being the father of a professional Royal Navy, rather than a band of brigands-type Royal Navy, something that's much more carefully organised,
1: something that can try and balance its books. Ah, and there was a, a war with the Dutch going on at around this time, wasn't there? Was that part of the reason for needing to up their game? England is at war frequently in this period, particularly with, with the Dutch. Um, there
2: are a number of quite frankly naval embarrassments um, in the period where you know, england doesn 't fare very well and Pepys is there to put in place the sort of the shipbuilding processes. he introduces exams for lieutenants, so he 's there making sure that things are running smoothly and efficiently
1: and actually increasing the sort of presence and power of the Royal Navy Uh, we're moving uh, and I've got to say I love exhibition space lighting and we're moving through the shadows as we round the first corner we're uh, seeing a model ship and I gather that Peeps actually based a lot of his maritime knowledge, not on their personal experience but on
3: models. Yes, he'd amassed quite a collection of ship models and he taught himself quite a lot from them. Um it's sort of the anatomy of the ship, if you like. But he also used things like there was a seaman's dictionary he was using. He went out to shipyards to talk to shipwrights, um, and basically suck up as much knowledge as he could, because he had to do a lot of his learning very much on the job. He wasn't experienced in naval affairs before he came to become clerk of the navy. So how
1: did he get the job? Uh, we were to the personal connection,
3: this man here, this man here he is Edward montague later Earl of Sandwich, um, distant cousin of peeps quite rich, well connected. Um, he makes Pepys his clerk in 1660, um, which puts peeps right at the heart of things. And it's through montague's patron, and he um, he basically helps him with a leg up to working at the Navy Board, and then that eventually leads to him becoming Secretary of the Admiralty.
1: So he must have been seeing something in peeps that made him think that he was man for the job.
3: Yeah, I think so. I I mean, Pepys obviously was a very good administrator, a very good thinker. He was very organised, and I think this all helped to get him into a position where he would be quite influential.
1: What about his sense of self as well? It seems to be he has something about somebody who keeps a, a diary and sees his own life in tandem with the life of the nation. That, that seems to speak to a particular sense of identity.
2: I think he knows who he is, you know, I th- and I think Pepys is actually perhaps a little pleased with himself. You know, he, he's secured what is actually a very good job. I mean, we've done some calculations so when he starts as clerk of the acts at the navy board he's on the equivalent of what would be about 66,000 pounds a year now so he's not doing too badly um for someone just starting out on life and as you go through the diary you see him involving himself in a wider range of affairs more lavish parties a wider circle of friends so he 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 knows he's doing interesting things and he's very aware that London is the place to be London is an exciting city in the 1660s for a wide variety of reasons not just not just party going and politics but it's also a city you know that suffers from plague and it's also a city that's largely burnt to the ground in the great fire I
1: wonder what Greenwich was at that time. Clearly we had these institutions. Was this a place that the general public would be visiting or was this very much an administrative naval hub?
2: Well, Greenwich hasn't quite arrived as a naval hub at, at this point in time, but Peeps does regularly visit Greenwich because it's between the naval dockyards at Deptford and Woolwich, which he visits regularly as part of his work. And of course, Greenwich has other attractions as well. Mrs. Bagwell lives in Greenwich. Was Mrs. Bagwell one of the attractions? Mrs. <laughs> Bagwell was one of the attractions <laughs> for Peeps. yeah. Um, Mr. Bagwell works in the dockyard, and
3: Mrs bagwell is one of peeps's many mistresses and mr bagwell didn't seem to mind that mrs bagwell was carrying on with samuel peeps in fact it helped with his career somewhat i suppose
1: we need to face up to this aspect of the diaries because they do reveal a london which was uh, up to no good all the time there were people uh, fumbling in closets uh, on a semi-permanent basis but I
3: wonder how different it is even from today. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you can characterise London as sort of a place of immorality, debauchery and sort of luxury and excess. But I mean, to a degree, it's probably not that different from today, I don't think.
1: We seem a little bit more uh, upset by it making a headline, though, don't we? We, we seem to like to point in, uh, particularly somebody in high office we disapprove as a society of them getting up to no good uh, whereas his diary
3: seemed to reveal well and of course the man in high, highest office the king was very much living a life of, of luxury debauchery and licentiousness so he was setting the tone wasn't he mm, very much so and although Pepys criticizes the court and the king a lot in his diary he's actually just carrying on in a very similar way himself
1: did that have a consequential effect on business as usual and affect how people did their work
3: No, I think
2: you have to understand that people worked very differently. Um, The the working day was structured differently in the 17th century. You would have your dinner, your main meal, around midday. So Pepys is often up before dawn to the office. Then he may be um, for a meal. Then he may go to the theatre in the afternoon. And then he might come back to the office. And because he actually lives Above the office Often office life turns into Party life as well And suddenly there's a party at the office That may go on until two in the morning Singing, dancing, making merry Somewhere
3: in all that he has to sit and write his diary of course
1: <laughs> uh, The fact that you've got theatre Going on in the afternoon is quite mm-hmm. true That speaks to a very different <laughs> lifestyle it, Well I mean Peeps is a
3: theatre
2: goer Extraordinaire I mean he will sometimes go more than once a day
3: To the theatre Simply to see his many Performances as possible. In the nine years of his diary, he visits something like almost 350 times. We're surrounded
1: by exhibits, as one would expect. Where should we point ourselves? we're moving we're (laughs) moving
3: let's do the operation
1: there's a a real there's a real dual brain thing going on here that was a very interesting interaction to watch it's in the same room (laughs) (laughs) well we've missed exhibits such as what looks to be a death mask a suit of armor an enormous gold plate which i shall be attempting to stick under my jacket on the way out and we've come to a small cabinet that contains could be forceps perhaps
3: that's right there's forceps there's a gorget and there's also a scoop and these are the instruments of the rather ghastly operation that peeps had in 1658
1: the forceps you can imagine scissors with a sort of double spoon like end but it's the gorget that you would want to worry about imagine if you were dressing up as Freddy Krueger at Halloween <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> you would you would put one of these on each finger it's a metal conical spike
3: yeah, it's designed to keep the incision open once it had been cut so that you could easily put the forceps and the scoops into the incision to remove what was for Peeps, a bladder stone, about the size of a snookable. And we have a bladder stone here from about 1900, which is of the equivalent size to Samuel Peeps'.
1: Yeah, has that been cut in half or is that what it looks like?
3: Yeah, it's been bisected so you can see the formation of it. It forms in layers as time goes on, so it's almost like the rings of a tree.
1: Yeah, you certainly wouldn't want, to want one of these in. But the the operation, which of course would be extremely dangerous in an age without antibiotics and pain relief and so forth, this came back to haunt him.
2: It's a major moment in his life. Had Pepys not survived the bladder operation, we would know utterly nothing about him beyond his school record and an entry in a university ledger. He survives the operation remarkably it takes him five weeks to recover from the trauma of the operation and then very often he will celebrate with a stone feast so he has a party of food wine friends round to celebrate his good fortune
3: he also had his bladder stone mounted in gold and he would bring it out on special occasions to show his friends because he's very proud of it unfortunately we don't know what happened to his bladder stone so anyone out there knows, let us know
1: (laughs) it it would be lovely, wouldn't it, to get a diary a companion diary entry from a friend and their reaction to being shown (laughs) yeah,
3: absolutely, absolutely I'm sure he did it on many an occasion (laughs) where should we go next? I'm following you, Chris. talk about the diary. So, as we mentioned in 1660, momentous year nationally because we're on the cusp of restoration and the collapse of the um, of the Commonwealth. Pepys decides to pick up a pen and start to write a personal diary. Um, he writes the diary in a version of shorthand known as Shelton shorthand. You can see in this uh, book of letters by Pepys that. Some of them are written in shorthand, and it's, it's sort of like lots of squiggles on the page with the odd longhand word, which was easier to write in longhand. And he writes it in shorthand um, probably for two reasons: partly because he's using it in his everyday job, and it's easy for him to write down very quickly his thoughts. But also, I think it's in case Mrs. peeps might discover the diary, she wouldn't be able to pick it up and just read it. Um, so it's an interesting process how he wrote the day. He seems to have written notes during the day, and then every day or every other day, he would sit down and write up those notes. So he was self-editing as he was writing the diary. Because, of course, we can't have Pepys's actual diary, which is at Magdalen College, Cambridge,
2: and the terms of Pepys will prevent it from leaving Cambridge. He's at Cambridge, he, he gets um, a fellowship to go to Cambridge, so he he's always been a sort of fellowship boy. He, he, he won a scholarship to go to St yes. Paul's mm-hmm. School and then he has an exam and passes that and then goes on to... Um, to so this is a guy who just uh, keeps impressing people. Yes, he, he does. He, he keeps going on. And what, what is quite extraordinary is that people who meet him only for a passing moment seem immediately impressed with, with Pepys. So when Pepys is on the ship that brings Charles II back um, from the Netherlands, um, Pepys meets the Duke of York, the king's younger brother, and the Duke of York says, I'll try and do do you write? You know, and of course, the Duke of York ultimately becomes Pepys's
1: boss. So we move, uh, we move away, and we're going uh, We do need to move a reasonable clip because this is a big exhibition. Yeah. Well, how, how many things have you got on display?
3: I've got about 185 objects, and they've been lent by about 35 different institutions um, from Britain and abroad. So it's a real diversity of objects How does that work just by the way I've been around
1: so many exhibitions and I don't think I've, I've ever really asked this so you, you have the uh, idea that you want to have this as a subject what are the hoops that you've got to jump through in order to get certain exhibits.
3: Do you have a shopping list? Or do you, That's do you, exactly what it is for me. I mean, it's a bit of fantasy shopping. You go out and you see what's out there and then you just decide about, about how you're going to fit it together to tell the story that you want to tell. Certain objects tell you very real, real stories, certain things, and you, you know that you want those in the exhibition, and then you build your object list around those objects.
1: But then you've got to have existing knowledge of what's out there. Is there not a moment where you speak to experts in the field and they say, oh, there's, there's this other I'm, thing?
3: Absolutely. We're always putting out filos trying to find out what's out there we talk to colleagues in other museums we talk to colleagues here at the museum about what's out there and, and, and from that we draw up quite an extensive list of what is available or what might be available So you will end up in our case with
2: a couple of huge ring binders full of potential objects maybe five or six hundred objects and then you begin the process of boiling down and then you get to the sort of essence of the exhibition that's left and that's what you you see here. Of course you don't get every object that you want and you may have to seek an alternative and then maybe even another alternative. But eventually you get something that gels together holds the story and
1: that's what you get presented in the exhibition space. So in a, in a situation like this actually not having Pepy's diary here in the flesh as it were perhaps is not too much of a drawback because there are so many copies of it. People are reasonably familiar with the text. But what, what about other artefacts that you would have liked to have had here?
2: Well Obviously, we would have loved to have had um, Peeps' uh, diary here. That that would have been absolutely magnificent. What you'll find is that some of the objects that Peeps himself owned have become very widely scattered around the world and of course bringing individual objects from individual institutions across the globe becomes an immensely costly way so at the back of your mind you've also got to get the object that gives you value for money as well so it's a it's a very tricky tightrope to walk between getting objects that have huge impact and are able to tell the
3: story but are also within your budgetary constraints and there are also objects which you can't have simply because they're either too fragile to lend or they're being used or lent to somebody else so there are there are things that i would have loved to have had the death warrant of charles the first in here but it's so fragile because it was displayed for a very long time and it can't be lent anymore so there's those old objects which are sadly aren't here but um, on the whole I mean we've got quite a lot of OR objects here in the exhibition and a lot of what we, we wanted in terms of iconic objects are here
1: that's put a whole new dimension actually onto looking at an exhibit f- just to pick three that are close by us. Imagine listener trying to transport the portrait of the king, uh, Charles II there, it's in a 10 foot by 10 foot frame. The enormous gold plate that's half the height of me and to my right an intricate and delicate looking model of a ship how do you fancy trying to transport one of those on easy jet Uh, let's move on to our next exhibit though we're heading towards his majesty
3: yeah we're talking about our 10 foot square painting of the king um this is obviously the coronation portrait of charles ii Um, nothing quite says restored monarchy like this painting he is shown surrounded by the trappings of kingship dressed in copious
0: tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts
3: amounts of ermine, holding the the new regalia, um, the sceptre and the orb, and wearing the new crown. He's enthroned under the canopy of state. He's wearing his suit of the Order of the Garter. So it's all about kingship and monarchy, this painting, a very potent painting. And and, and everything about this, actually,
1: is in definite rejection of what's gone on in the last 15 years
3: or so absolutely but there's also a secret message to it as well because it's all about the king's loins because if you look at it we're designed to look straight into his sort of groin area and because it's all about the king's fertility it's about the king being able to produce an heir to produce a successful Stuart dynasty and this painting is very much giving that message and how did that go very badly unfortunately the king had a lot of illegitimate children with his mistresses but no children with his wife so he had no legitimate children although he had probably about 14 illegitimate children spread between his mistresses that really is a failure to meet targets. <laughs> <isn't? laughs> yeah sadly yeah i mean um, he, his wife probably had two miscarriages sadly but um, yeah he but he remained married to her he was encouraged to divorce her but remained with her throughout his life which is all to his credit
1: well, it's interesting that you say that this effect is deliberate because it. Rem- <laughs> I, know, I know this isn't what I should be thinking, but there's the Will Ferrell film Anchorman and the poster for that is a, a newsreader in his newsreader attire above the desk and then wearing no trousers Absolutely. underneath and I'm afraid that is the effect that he's
3: <laughs> yeah, very tight. Yeah. yeah, he's, he's wearing a, a, a lovely sort of silver tissue garter suit and the most amazing stockings and red-heeled shoes. We're going to throw a break in, but I'd love to tease across the break the item that we're going to be looking at next. We're going to look at the silver tissue dress in this case, which is a rather beautiful and unique survival from 1660s. It's a court dress um, that would have been worn in the presence of the king and his court. Okay, we'll be trying that on after the break. If you
1: like the podcast and want to support us, then please give our sponsor due consideration a fantastic magazine and here's a word about them.
2: The Week magazine is a concise, refreshing and balanced take on the news from the past seven days. Taken from over 200 print and online sources, we give you the best news, comment and opinion from the UK and overseas, bringing you up to date with everything you need
0: to know. What's more, you'll also get the lighter side of the news, with the latest arts, people, food and drink, travel, properties and much more. Available in print, digital or both, it's the
2: perfect solution for anybody who wants an intelligent and independent view of what's going on in the world. Don't just take our word for it. Get your first issue for free. Sign up at www.theweek.co.uk forward slash Londonist.
1: You're listening to Londonist Out Loud, I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and with me Robert Blythe and Chris Martin no, not that Chris Martin we're at the National Maritime Museum we're on the south bank of the Thames at Greenwich and the exhibition Plague, Fire and Revolution and during the break I've bedecked myself with this fancy dress what do you think, does it suit me?
3: I think so, yeah good. hard push to get into it though, it's got a very slender waist
1: It does, I'm going to have trouble breathing what's the significance of this, why is it here?
3: Well, this is a unique survival. This is a silver tissue dress which was made around 1660 for somebody to wear at the court of Charles II. It's made of this incredible silver tissue which absolutely gleams and sparkles and would have looked absolutely incredible in candlelight. It's been paired with this beautiful 17th century Venetian lace collar which it would have been worn with and um it's I think you'd certainly agree it's fitting for somebody to wear in the presence of the king.
1: And, the, and lace itself, I think, was a valuable commodity, wasn't
3: it? Absolutely. Um, yes, Venetian lace in particular was the, the height of lace Is what you wanted to get your hands on.
1: What I can't help noticing is that what I'm taking to be a male costume on the other side of the cabinet actually seems more intricate and to be bearing more lace than the female garb. Well, this is a 17th century wedding suit and it
2: consists of you know, a, a doublet and then it's decorated intricately with vast amounts of silk ribbon. And this was a particular fashion of the moment and this one has well over 100 feet of ribbon decorating it and that would have been paired up with Gloves as well, with the gloves also covered um, in ribbon. So this is a complete contrast with the sort of Commonwealth period where you've got very austere and simple clothing. This is now an exuberance of high fashion, drawing on influences particularly from France. And this is the
1: sumptuousness of Charles II's new Stuart Court. Well, I hope my dates work out here because I... I I think I'm right in saying that we'd have had the Huguenots arriving in town around about this time.
3: Not quite. No, too early. M- for that. M- yeah, most of the Huguenots arrive in the 1680s. Um, but you're right that when the Huguenots come over, they have these great skills in textile manufacturing, upholstery, and you get this massive blossoming of the most beautiful fabrics and um, and work and ribbon and ribbons and, in particular. And ribbons as well, exactly.
1: Oh well, ne- nearly there within a few years. Yeah. Uh, let's let's move on to our next piece. There's a picture here that I feel I've, I've seen a lot of times. Ah, this is uh, Catherine of Braganza, and it's a picture you'll know instantly, a very uh, individual portrait by Dirk Stoop. Yeah, she's
3: dressed in the rather sombre attire of the Portuguese royal court, and this is how Catherine would have arrived in 1661 when she was coming over to marry the king. But rather cruelly, she arrived in this sort of black attire, and... Um, the king is said to have remarked that the Portuguese had sent him a bat, which is rather uncalled. <laughs> but she has this rather bizarre sort of cowlick haircut, um, ha- hairstyle, and then and, and this sort of very old-fashioned dress. But within just a few weeks possibly months she was dressing in the more sort of frivolous daring styles of the english court well yes
1: as we said earlier the king was very much setting the tone in licentiousness and revelry and sexy behavior so she would need to keep up really to keep pace with the various mistresses and i think that might be who we're in front of right yeah, now yeah we
3: have we have a wall of mistresses here and so barbara villiers here on the far left who was a dominant mistress in charles's court she was a very clever shrewd lady really sort of negotiating relationships in the court and also having some control over the king's relationships with other women but beautifully painted by lily here and then alongside her we've got nell gwyn who is <laughs> who is rec- clining nude on this beautiful sort of luxurious satin um, she's shown as Venus there um, this is a very very bizarre and unusual portrait for this period um, and the story goes that she was concealed at Whitehall behind a rather sedate naval painting um, at, at a royal dockyard and that the king would be able to slide that to one side to show people Nell in all her glory to very special friends
1: Uh, There are so many Frankie (laughs) Howard-esque jokes that could be made. (laughs) What about this picture, though? What does this say that this was painted in this way? Well, this tells you quite a bit about Nell's relationship with
2: the king. I mean, he was clearly enamoured of her, and she is reclining, as Chris says, nude, in the form of Venus, and she's being attended by this little cherub. And the cherub may, in fact, be Charles Beauclerc, who is the illegitimate son that Nell has with with Charles. So there's a sort of hidden message within the painting. I mean, to the very left of the painting, you've a pair of sort of loving turtle doves there and all sorts of strange imagery put in. But as Chris said, this is very much a private painting. This is one for the king and his very
1: inner circle to see And we've got uh, another portrait on uh, the right there, Mary Davis. Well, this is Mary
2: or Moll Davis. Unlike um, Nell Gwyn, she was also an actress on the stage, and she's shown here, you know, very demurely playing the guitar. Um, Pepys was impressed by Moll's appearances on stage, but Pepys also records in the diary what Mrs. Pepys thought of Moll Davis, and she described Moll as the most impertinent slut in the world
3: harsh yes. <laughs> yeah, so. but she uh, as, as Robert says Peeps was a big fan of both Moll but he was also a fan of, of Nell Gwyn um, used to see plays with both of them in and um, was very positive about Nell's comical performances on stage but not so positive about her dramatic performances she was a great comedian apparently Is this the 17th century version of photoshopping that
1: I'm seeing here? Because the features of these three women all seem to be. Very similar. Very similar and and sort of enhanced. Their their lips and their eyes seem to be slightly enhanced. Yeah,
3: Um, Peter Leely, who painted all three of these paintings, had a very particular style and it was that sort of heavy lidded, big lipped style that you see throughout his paintings. And as you say, it's very alluding to the sort of sexuality of the women in the paintings. Well, uh, quite enough of that sort of thing.
2: (laughs) Where to? I think we should go on and deal with
1: um, Peeps and his love of music. Oh, now, this is something I've not heard about in respect of Peeps. We have in a, a display case here. Now, is that a l- lute? We've a
2: lute, a guitar, and a little flageolet, or um, sort of almost like a tiny recorder. And Peeps, while he loved the theatre, also <laughs> adored music. Um, he played several instruments himself. And you often have in the diary, you know, did walk to Greenwich singing all the way, you know, and peeps is a sort of bass baritone. He loves to perform himself. He loves to sing in company. And he will spend evenings playing away on his various instruments. And as he gets richer, he's able to indulge this passion to the absolute extreme by hiring a personal musician, Cesare Morelli, um, who will actually play for him. So this is like the ultimate personal hive, for the, um, for the 17th century but he will also simplify complex melodies for Pepys so that Pepys can play them himself so he's performing
1: and also providing music for Pepys and these instruments, of course, we know the guitar. Though the the way that both of these instruments are stringed is very different uh, from what you might expect. The guitar seems to have ten strings, the lute twenty. Yes, and, and Peeps is able
2: to to master these. He's not simply an accomplished musician, but he's also interested in the theory of music. So he will buy a spinet, a, a stringed keyboard instrument and um, simply to understand how that instrument works and he also buys books expensive books on musical theory so that he understands how music itself works so he's a really very curious
1: about all aspects of this particular passion. so uh, so he's a quite the renaissance uh, man almost literally um, are there areas of his life where you, you might expect that he might have experimented a little bit we don't see too much evidence of interest
2: well, um, there's not so much evidence of him, as it were, being an artist. We don't really see Pepys drawing himself. He has an interest in calligraphy, you know, penmanship, but you know, he, he's not out, you know,
3: sketching landscapes or providing little portraits. Joins, but, but he does collect art i mean he has a lot of on his death he had many portraits in his collection and many sort of naval scenes um, partly because it showed how well connected he was to have these portraits of the, the famous around him in his home so he, he was a collector and appreciator of art but yeah as robert says i don't think he ever indulged himself in, in drawing or painting
1: Just because time tells us so, we have to move on apace. And there are two big events coming up in the 1600s, of course, that everybody knows about and sometimes wrongly connect. If I may, I'm going to miss the fire because i think there's a lot to say and there's a great visual representation here you must get down and have a look at this and there's a cheese story that i'll 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 just dangle that in front of you and invite you to ask about the parmesan when you get down here what i've not heard so much about is the plague and i wonder if we could investigate that Well, Pepys stays in London
2: through this extraordinary outbreak of plague that affects the city in 1665, and we're standing in front of a display case here, and on the back of the case we have this sort of extraordinary fumigating torch. This is actually a replica of a 17th century style of fumigating torch, and the idea was that the plague was spread through miasma, bad airs, I mean nobody really knew what caused plague in the 17th century. But with your fumigating torch, you would put incense in the burner and then you could cleanse a room of bad airs and free it from the plague. So this is a little like they do in the the church. The the same sort of principle, and you're cleansing the space. Now, obviously, when you're outside, the fumigating torch is pretty useless. Um, You need something else. And what we've got on display here is a small pomander. Now, you might have a pomander... Um, in everyday life in 17th century London because the smells would have been pretty ripe Um, and you would just hold it to your nose to try and ward off the smell but in a plague year, you might fill it more with medicinal herbs that were thought
1: to be preventative of plague, and you would clasp that to your nose as you moved about the city. i, I better drop a description here, because if you haven't a pomander in your mind, you're not going to guess this. Imagine a Terry's chocolate orange, <laughs> and you, you crack the top, and it falls into its segments, but all still connected at the base. Imagine that with an apple core uh, up the middle of it. This doesn't look like the sort of thing that one would want to press against one's face. Well... You might do if you were threatened with plague oh yeah that might do it yeah <laughs> that might do it now Pepys,
2: of course um stays in london for an incredible length of time during the plague before actually moving down with his office and his wife to greenwich to try and escape the plague in the relative safety of greenwich but when confronted with red crosses on doors which indicated that the plague had struck these households Pepys gets the fear of the plague and he rushes off and he buys some tobacco and we have peeps's tobacco box here and the idea was here that tobacco is a medicinal herb in this period and that chewing tobacco would ward off the plague so almost every sort of old wives tale is coming out during the plague outbreak and there's just there's
1: just nothing in that is there
2: No, none of these things are going to prevent the plague
3: Nobody realises that plague is spread by infected fleas and it's clear from the diary that Pepys is very apprehensive about the plague, very anxious about the possibility of catching it, but he's also morbidly fascinated by it. So he pulls through things like mortality bills on a weekly, a weekly basis to look at how many people are dying from the plague. He also continues to commute between Greenwich and the city um, during the plague year. And also he does things like he, he, he visits plague pits because he's interested to see what they look like. Now all this, these things put him in danger and he's very apprehensive about getting it but he just seems to be one of those people who's very lucky and just doesn't get it uh, but meanwhile friends family colleagues associates are all dying of the plague around him
1: Uh, well i feel like we need to leave meat on the bone Uh, let's move on and and perhaps we could uh, find a flourish with which to finish go here now, as, as flourishes go, this looks modest. We have a book of ordinary paperback size open. It's, uh, it contains handwriting, and in front of it are a pair of pince-nez with green lenses. Now, we've reached
2: 1669, and it's the point at which Pepys ends his diary. At this point, he's achieved many things. He's become wealthy. He's now managed to finally afford his own coach so he can move about London. He's in really Greece. not doing badly. A musician, a coach. Oh, yes, yes. He's he's absolutely um, made it. You know, he really is. He's wealthy and well-connected man about town. Can we put... Like, you, you mentioned a, a modern equivalent of his wage at the beginning. What's he worth now? Oh, he... Well, in modern-day terms, he's into the hundreds of thousands now. And you, he begins each year of his diary with a nice... Little restatement of his personal wealth. It doesn't go down, it keeps moving up throughout the period. And so we've got a little pair of green tinted spectacles. All of this paperwork that Pepys does by flickering candlelight puts a tremendous strain on his eyes. And of course, famously, he stops his diary because he believes he's going to go blind. He doesn't go blind, he's simply suffering badly from long-sightedness and astigmatism. So he has eye trouble that isn't being helped by diary keeping. Now, the little book behind the pair of green-tinted spectacles is actually the first ever transcription of Pepys's diary. And this was done in the early 19th century by a rather unfortunate Cambridge undergraduate called John Smith. Smith's job was to transcribe the 1.5 million words of Pepys's diary into longhand so it could be edited and then published. Now, the problem for Smith was that he didn't realise that the diary was written in the Shelton shorthand that Chris described earlier. And he essentially had to do the transcription from first principles... And it was only as he came towards the end of the transcription, after several years of work, (laughs) that someone pointed out to him the Shelton shorthand book that was on the shelf above the diary (laughs) he'd be working on. And we comically imagine that this was a sort of, oh God, moment of the worst Nature. Oh, am I going to regret uh, laughing? How did he take the news? Um, He took the news pretty badly. Um, He had been paid very poorly for the task, which took much, much longer than anyone really thought. And when the edited
3: diary came out, he was shunted to one side. He wasn't credited, unfortunately, when the first publication came out. So the heavily edited version that came out just after he'd done all this work didn't mention him, sadly. That's a bit of
1: a, a, a sad note to finish on. And I think there might be another note because I'm reminded of those medical tools, those surgical tools, which we can see through the partition here. That operation had an influence on his later life.
3: Well, he had recurring stone problems throughout his life and he talks about passing stones at a certain point and throwing them onto the fire to destroy them. His uh, wound never properly healed and towards the end of life it did open up again and caused all sorts of problems. Um, and he had kidney issues, and he was—he had quite a few medical problems towards the end of the life, which eventually killed him.
1: Uh, which gives us resolution,
3: if not at uh, the right point. age of seventy, though oh, seventy—that's okay. that's the he, note we were yeah, looking for. He lived, he lived a good long life. You
1: can find out more about his life and the life of the capital and the nation during his lifetime here at the National Maritime Museum. The exhibition, well, it's, it's starting just about now. If you can hear this, it's on. Get down here. And you go until when? March, I think? 28th of March. So this is a, a good uh, Christmas trip out for the family as well, if they can bear the sight of the surgical tools and <laughs> uh, and a kidney stone. For now, though, we have to take our leave. Thanks very much for taking us around the exhibition and best of luck with the members' view this evening, Robert Blythe, Chris Martin. Thanks very much. Thank okay. you.
0: thank
1: you And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Robert Blythe and Chris Martin. Thanks to, to Eloise Maxwell, Mark Varr, and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe.